So far, we have taken a deep look at psychedelics from a societal history perspective. That part of the psychedelic story is interesting in itself. There are the properties of the substances themselves that we explored in episode 5. But beyond the science that we will dig into a bit more, the fascinating thing about psychedelics is how they were misunderstood over and over by religious ideologies and cultural differences. More importantly, the very molecules that are supposed to be opening up the mind drove differences, for which the advocates passionately voiced their opinion, triggering panic and paranoia among the excitement. So the damage was done. Psychedelics were lumped in with other psychoactive substances, and organizations like the DEA and governments around the world push hard for keeping up the prohibition. But how did the world change from its prohibitionist stance to allowing the proper exploration of the use of these substances in some of the recent clinical trials? That's the story we're going to explore next. And the path to where we are today did not happen without a lot of hiccups, blood, sweat, and tears. This is Psychedelics, a Scraps original podcast exploring the therapeutic potential of psychedelics. An enthralling story of an improbable drug class as old as humankind itself, banished into exile, yet comes back soaring like a phoenix from the ashes to save mankind's affliction with mental health disorders. The best place to start is exactly where we left off, the year 1971. We have spoken enough about the geopolitical situation at this time, but what we haven't spoken is how the world of psychedelic research came to a standstill. One could argue that in a world of chaos, such a reset is needed. A reset that was so hard that people needed to completely reassess the impact of what had happened. Let me give you an example to help you understand. Take the case of a heart that is fibrillating like a bag of worms, unable to get a single proper contraction. What does an emergency medical technician do? They assess the situation and the patient, they check for pulse, and if no pulse was detected, they shock the heart. What happens in the heart once it's been shocked is this period of delay between when the shock is provided to when the normal activity resumes. This pause is a reset of all electrical circuitry that was needed. So the field of psychedelic research needed this reset. There could have been rationality that could have prevailed on all sides. But you know what? When science influences the mind to influence society and politics, you cannot have it solely one way. The government could have of course taken a more considerate approach. On the other side, the psychedelic evangelists, psychologists and the psychiatrists could have run control experiments to show that what they believed was good enough. After all, randomized control studies were being done around this time and this was not a foreign concept. 
Why did the chemists, psychologists and psychiatrists skip these steps and run only observational studies and not bona fide clinical trials? This is something that can spur a healthy debate. Why was there a paucity of randomized controlled clinical studies to show to their peers, the regulators and everyone involved to demonstrate that the effects were not subjective or made up but one that had a strong scientific grounding is not known. Well, if you disagree, let me tell you the first randomized controlled clinical trial was done in 1948, which explored the role of streptomycin for the treatment of pulmonary tuberculosis. You don't believe me? Here is what the book published in 1979, called as Psychedelic Drugs Revisited, authored by Lester Grinspoon and James Bacalar said, and I quote, Many people remember vaguely that LSD and other psychedelic drugs were once used experimentally in psychiatry, but few realize how much and how long they were used. This is not a quickly rejected and a forgotten fad. Between the years 1950 and the mid-1960s, there were more than a thousand clinical papers discussing 40,000 patients, several dozen books, and six international conferences on psychedelic drug therapy. It aroused the interest of many psychiatrists who were in no sense cultural rebels or especially radical in their attitudes. It aroused the interest of many psychiatrists who were in no sense cultural rebels or especially radical in their attitudes. Sure, but to our knowledge and through careful research that we've undertaken, None of the few thousand clinical papers discussing 40,000 patients were controlled trials that were needed to approve a drug for clinical use. So in the absence of that, one could argue that the field brought all of this on itself. Why do we say this? Not because we don't believe in the potential, but because if the field of psychiatric medicine needs to make a claim, 40,000 patient administrations might provide a great feeling about safety in a clinical setting, but to clearly identify signal over noise, a proper clinical trial is needed. This is so crucial to understand because no drug should ever be used without a proper study. And if things were done without good scientific rigor, it deserves to wallow in the wild. This is the point where we have a critical pivot in the podcast. One from where the drugs went from the vial to the mouth to one where the field realized that a more considered approach was needed. This is because the people who wanted to change the world's view decided that to fight against the taboo, they needed to have a rock-solid proof, without passion or prejudice, to build evidence. And that evidence should be constructed like a fortress, whose bricks needed to be laid one after the other, fixed in place by mortar, all of which is to be done transparently and within legal means. So can we dig in? The first personality that we're going to pick up is Amanda Fielding. Amanda was born in the same year that Albert Hoffman took his first dose of LSD and had the famed bicycle trip. But Amanda's life would read like a novel, except that none of her life was fiction. She was born into a well-to-do British family that possessed a Tudor hunting lodge and a peerage. Amanda's father was an earl, so it is fair to say that compared to the rest of society, she had a privileged upbringing. Growing up in a Tudor lodge and being raised by parents who held mysticism and books about Eastern religions, young Amanda was thought to have been lost in mystical thoughts, so much so in search of a life-changing experience, 
she left the UK to see her uncle who was stationed in Salone, as Sri Lanka was called back then. But with a mere 25 pounds in her purse and no passport, her journey only got halfway to the Syrian border. There she is said to have met a group of drunk Bedouins who owned a Cadillac and were in utter shambles. And 16-year-old Amanda's driving is said to have helped the group to drive out of the desert to their encampments. There, Amanda found some interesting learnings about the nomadic lifestyle and the free-spiritedness that came with it. A year later, she arrived back in the UK to pursue comparative religious studies and mysticism in a degree program at Oxford. Much like the stories we heard about social and recreational use of LSD, Amanda had her first LSD experience at a party in the 1960s. This experience was so bad that ultimately she had to cocoon herself in her parental home near Oxford in the United Kingdom. A few months later, she met a medical student from Holland who had some radical notions. This young medical student, Bart Hughes, had an influence on Amanda's life. Bart and Amanda experienced many LXD trips. Bart Hughes was a massive influence on Amanda's life. Bart Hughes's reasoning was that a process called trepanation, which involved drilling of holes in the skull, would lead to normalization of the cranial blood and cerebrospinal fluid ratio and improve cerebral circulation. Before you wince, we must say that trepanation is a process that was undertaken in many ancient cultures, dating all the way back to prehistoric Neolithic period around 6500 BC. There's also evidence to suggest that trepanation was performed in other cultures too, like with the ancient Chinese, Middle Eastern, and Mesoamerican cultures. In fact, today's neurosurgical practice to treat hematoma in the brain involve a variation of trepanation. And Amanda's hypothesis was that just like how the childhood mystical experiences decrease with the closure of the fontanelles, when the cranial bones fuse, trepanation was said to unlock a form of mysticism by altering the blood circulation in the brain. Why are we bringing this aspect to the podcast? It's because these very thoughts were the foundation of Amanda Fielding's fascination with psychedelics. These were so radical at the time that the popular tabloids and establishment did not take very kindly to either LSD or trepanation. Amanda and Bart are said to have escaped to the Netherlands via boat, and after a few months, the pair split, and Amanda moved to the UK to live in her Tudor estate. But the following years, according to her own admittance, was a bit revelatory. Amanda, driven by her father's struggle with diabetes, had an inspired moment whereby she decided that the best way for her to understand and manage her cognitive function was by exploring the use of psychedelics. So through the period in the 1960s when LSD was still legal, Amanda was said to have self-experimented with LSD and assess her performance in a competitive game of mahjong against her friends and house help. She made the conclusion that LSD somehow altered the circulation in the brain that was similar to trepanation. While there are more colorful accounts of Amanda Fielding in popular press, her realization after the 1971 ban is something that needs to be admired. Through her art, she made quite a few acquaintances and managed to maintain a reasonably low profile with trepanation attempts surfacing from time to time. All of it came to a head when she realized that she needed to fight the battle against the prohibition of psychedelics in a way that would look scientifically credible. 
spurred on by what she perceived as a bad policy that prevented humans from approaching their right to have a mystical experience and with an indomitable spirit and had the confidence in the ability of psychedelics Amanda set out to chart a plan in 1998 we will come to this in just a bit until then hold on we need to tell you another parallel story at this point The scene now moves to 1970s America to explore the impact a 20-year-old man born in Chicago had on the field of psychedelic research. Rick Doblin was born into a conservative Jewish family to a pediatrician and a school teacher. Doblin, the eldest of four children, decided to drop out of college to study the realms of consciousness after an LSD trip. His parents, like most, were shocked. They let Rick follow his dreams nonetheless. Rick enrolled himself in Liberal Arts College in Florida. Unlike other universities that follow grades, evaluations at New Florida State College were contracts between the student and the counselor. Young Rick was said to have been introduced to noted psychologist Stanislav Grof's book Realms of Human Unconscious: Results from LSD Experiments and was said to have been fascinated by it. But here, buoyed on by careful experimentation accounts, Rick understood the value of preparation and integration in psychedelic practices. As is the case with people who search for a goal, young Rick attended to some immediate priorities by working in construction for a few years before his interest in psychology peaked again. He approached Stanislav Grof and worked with him to understand non-ordinary states of consciousness. as one would experience through practices like yoga, meditation, and psychedelic experiences. Rick Doblin, through his work with Stan Grof, became a holotropic breathwork practitioner. All of this fascination in psychology was realized in a key fundamental principle that the key to an effective psychedelic experience was the presence of adequate psychotherapy and support. Rick's realization came from two specific historical studies that he went back to. We alluded to one of them in episode 4, where Doblin was the first one to interview the prison inmates from Leary's Concord Prison Experiment to find that the prisoners receive little to no aftercare or integration sessions, and Timothy Leary fudged the data. Rick Doblin published these results in 1998. Another study that pointed Rick's outlook to how a psychedelic therapeutic session must be conducted came from the Good Friday experiment. Rick Doblin published these results in 1991, a few years before the results of the Concord Prison Experiment. If you're wondering what this is, it was an experiment that was conducted by a Harvard theology student, Walter Pank, under the supervision of, you guessed it, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert. as part of the Harvard Psilocybin project. Walter Pankey, along with 10 other graduate students who served as research assistants in the study, recruited 20 other graduate students to take part in the research study. These 20 graduate students were divided into two groups and randomized into one active drug group which was psilocybin and a placebo nicotinic acid. Nicotinic acid was chosen as the placebo because it provides an effective vasodilatory response over the skin resulting in a warm feeling. The students were then asked to take part in the Good Friday service and upon Leary's insistence 
The religious leaders who led the ceremony were also provided with either a drug or a placebo, with the, with the group leader receiving half the dose of psilocybin and the other group leader having a placebo. This was according to Rick Doblin's paper, and I quote, to provide a complete mystical experience and lend necessary confidence to the subjects. However, the group leaders were not followed up with any questionnaires, but all the study participants were. If you think this is a serious pitfall, I think you're not alone. The problem with this experiment was that psilocybin's effect was obvious to those who received it as the subjects were talking to each other during the service and the blinding was broken during the ceremony. But Rick Doblin, in his follow-up interviews, surmised that none of the subjects were prepared in any shape or form for the experience and this led to acute episodes of panic during the service among the study subjects. Secondly, the questionnaire created by Pankey and Leary was unlike anything else at this time. It did not measure anything that could be denoted as Christian and was dismissed by experts later on who developed more pointed questionnaires. As a result, the two experiments that Leary spearheaded, despite the whole set and setting, were not conducted well. So Rick Doblin asserted to himself that an effective psychotherapy with psychedelics should include preparation, support during an experience, followed by integration and follow through. Despite all this, one thing was clear. The psilocybin treated volunteers did unanimously agree to Rick Doblin that their experience was unlike any other that they had experienced in their life. Coming back to the effects of salience that we explored in the pharmacology episode. I think we should also mention to you the conversation Rick Doblin had with Timothy Leary in the 1990s that was chronicled in Boston Magazine a couple of years ago. In 1990, I asked Leary, based on your long experience with psychedelic research, what is your advice to us about how to try to bring back psychedelic research and to make it into medicine? How do you suggest we work with the government? He said, I am so far past asking the government for permission for anything, but I'm glad you're doing it. So he's like, fuck the government. And we're like, let's become mainstream. But Rick Doblin's journey beyond these realizations are unlike any other. We will come to that in a few minutes. But to understand this convoluted yet legal path that Rick Doblin took, we must go one level deeper. We must rewind our clocks back to the 1960s to chronicle the life of a very industrious chemist who made a very profitable pesticide called Zectran for the Dow Chemical Company and was referred to by Timothy Leary, and I quote, as the most important scientist of the 20th century. Dow Chemical Company, in return for the discovery of their most profitable pesticide patent, gave the chemist utmost freedom. Until the 1940s, when this young scientist went on to start his career for the Dow Chemical Company, there were only two psychoactive substances that was known. One was mescaline and the other was cannabis. LSD came in 1943, psilocybin in 1959. But by the time the 80s ended, the world had come to know of more than 200 synthetic compounds through the work of this chemist, 
who synthesize molecules that wear. Are you ready for the list? Stimulants, depressants, aphrodisiac, empathogens, convulsants, drugs that alter hearing, drugs that slow down one's sense of time, drugs that speed it up, drugs that trigger violent outbursts, drugs that deaden emotion, and in short, a veritable lexicon of tactile and emotional experience. The scientist that we are talking about is Alexander Shulgin. In the plain sight of the DEA, Shulgin synthesized most of these substances in his backyard laboratory. You can call Shulgin the unwitting genius or the Heisenberg of psychoactive substances. Shulgin's first psychedelic experience was with mescaline, and it was said to have influenced a lot of his work, including the famed patent for Zectran, the blockbuster pesticide. With newfound freedom that Dow Chemical Company provided, Shulgin decided that it was time to indulge in making psychoactive substances of his own, and even published influential journals like Nature and Journal of Biochemistry. Dow Chemical Company is said to have not taken to their name being used widely and asked Shulgin to not use their name as an affiliation. It is weird to think of. Shulgin was using Dow's resources to publish research but Dow Chemical Company requested him not to use their name. Requested? Don't think this would ever fly today. So what did Shulgin do? He parted ways with a company and set up his own lab in his backyard called The Farm, where in plain daylight he could carry on with synthesis of new psychoactive substances while still serving as a consultant to the DEA. During this time, he synthesized many of these substances and provided them to the DEA. Was it a conflict of interest? If you think there isn't one, let me tell you a bit more to see if I can persuade you to change your mind. Through these processes, he managed to publish two books that were cult classics of the scientifically inclined, Tikal and Pikal, standing for tryptamines, I have known and love, and phenylethamines, I know and love. So in the face of the prohibition, as the DEA-funded analytics lab, Shulgin manages to avoid scrutiny. Or was Shulgin such an amazing operator that he managed to have both DEA on his side and also publicize his books? Shulgin always maintained, right up until his death, that he did not intend for any of his substance to be used for recreational use. But talking the talk is different than walking the walk. Just like Hoffman, Shulgin does something weird and wonderful. I sometimes wonder why people would ever do anything like this. Shulgin knew that he was researching amphetamines, and amphetamines by nature would mimic the effects of adrenaline. Somehow, he assesses what would be a safe and tolerable concentration and manages to take a lower dose of the drug himself. Once again, serendipitously, the world gave rebirth to a molecule that was synthesized in 1912, but was now being tested on Shulgin himself. Shulgin noted a remarkable sense of euphoria and recommended it to his psychologist friend, Leo Zeff. MDMA, through Shulgin's network in California, had spread to use in many psychologists who found the empathy-heightening nature as a tool that could be used in couples therapy. Once again, a drug went from the vial to the mouth to popular usage, right under the DEA's nose. But neither did the establishment nor the scientists think it was time to test in a formal way. There is a counter-argument for this too. Many will say that when Shulgin recommended the drug to his psychologist friend, Leo Zeff, 
it was still legal. Zeff, a former colonel in the US Army, prior to being a psychologist, did not do anything illegal. But honestly, if one needs or wants to develop a clinical use for a synthetic molecule, one should not implement it without performing appropriate safety or dose-ranging studies. It was not illegal then, but runs a fine line of whether or not it was ethical, as there wasn't even an investigational study protocol or a peer review. But Ceph was not alone at the time. Many psychologists were using MDMA in clinical practice. Why are we talking about this? Because once Alexander Shulgin's methodology of synthesis of MDMA became known to other underground chemists, the market for MDMA grew exponentially. The question remains, should the farm laboratory run by Shulgin have freely disseminated the information on synthesis of MDMA that laid the groundwork for recreational use in the 1980s? Popularized by the happy 80s disco and concert cultures, MDMA found a new use at bars and music festivals. What was inadequately addressed was the non-psychoactive side effects that are associated with MDMA that led to many deaths predominantly via dehydration and hypothermia, both of which are classic symptoms of hyperadrenergic response driven by amphetamines. So was Shulgin an amazing scientist or a person who miscalculated the effect he could have on popular culture? Well, as we always say, we are the gardener sowing the seeds in your head and you as the intelligent listener can make a decision. So the slow to react DEA bans the substance in 1985 and placed it in Schedule 1 of the DEA drug classification. And guess who was at the center of its legal appeal? Yes, Rick Doblin, of course. The 1985 ban and scheduling of MDMA into Schedule 1 meant that the substance had addictive psychoactive properties and did not have any therapeutic value, according to the DEA. But MDMA, as per the psychologists of the time, did have a therapeutic value. There were multiple clinical experiences and discussions and conferences that rendered it to be useful in clinical practice. So was the DEA wrong and did it overreact? So what were the logical next steps? Many proponents of MDMA psychotherapy filed for a legal appeal and Rick Doblin spearheaded the effort. But Rick, who was 32 years old at the time, decided that things needed to be done formally to change the view of the world. This, I think, was the seminal moment in Rick's career. Rather than falling into the trap of all of those who came before him who evangelized the use of psychedelics, Rick Doblin decided that the best way to counter this was to fight the battle. But as you can imagine, the battle was largely disproportionate in nature and Rick Doblin had to resort to philanthropic donations to restart this lonely path to legalization of MDMA as a therapeutic tool. Between 1985 and 2011, Rick Doblin and his team at MAPS, a charity organization that he founded single-handedly, took up the case for performing studies as it needed to be done for the new drug. The toxicity studies were published in 1987 through formal engagement and extremely tough negotiations. Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies launched its formal Phase I clinical trials in 2002. 
but the path to pivotal trials to test the efficacy took another 15 years. We'll come to the results and the efforts in a later episode, but the efforts of Rick Doblin in unpicking the past studies and figuring how to legalize psychedelic treatments should serve as an inspiration to all. But that was the case of MDMA, an atypical psychedelic molecule. It is atypical because it does not affect the 5-HT2A receptor that we discussed in the last episode. So what happened to the other molecules, like psilocybin or ayahuasca-derived tryptamine, known as DMT? How did they accomplish initiating trials with psilocybin or employ the synthetic substance that caused the psychedelic experience in ayahuasca, DMT, or dimethyltryptamine? Well, to understand this, let's go to an expert, Dr. Mark Geyer. Dr. Geyer is a psychopharmacologist at University of California, San Diego, and has been one of the few behavioral neuroscientists who employ both pharmacological and behavioral approaches to drug studies. Here is Mark Geyer detailing how and why he got interested in psychedelic science. I, I grew up in Oregon, and I was uh, went to school in the University of Oregon and then the University of Iowa. Um, moved on to finish my PhD in, at the University of California, San Diego. In 1970, I uh, came to San Diego. And it was uh, at that time because I moved here because... The founding chairman of the Department of Psychiatry, who was 34 years old, had recently discovered an enzyme in the brain of uh, rats that would metabolize serotonin into a psychedelic, um, one that, if given systemically, wouldn't pass blood-brain barrier, but basically it's um, a compound related to what is the active ingredient in ayahuasca, biopsy, and enzymethyltryptamine, or just straight uh, an enzymethyltryptamine, or DMT, the so-called spirit molecule. And at that time, I was um, coming out of the 1960s um, as an erstwhile hippie, um, interested in psychedelics for a number of reasons, um, some personal, some Academic, so I joined um, Arnold Mandel, the new chair, as a graduate student um, to study this new finding, um, which, as it turns out, was uh, not a real finding. I mean, it was not a robust finding. It turned out to be an artifact of thin-layer chromatography at the time, so the actual data were dismissed. Um, but I went on um, to finish my PhD there uh, rather rapidly, uh, working on what was then kind of a newly identified neurotransmitter called dopamine. But I began working um, on explicitly on uh, psychedelic compounds in 1974. So my first psychedelic paper was on um, an endimethyltryptamine um, in rats in 1975, and got a a grant in 1976 from the National Science Foundation to hire about a dozen undergraduate students for a summer program in which we studied the effects of uh, LSD primarily in a variety of behavioral uh, tests. And that moved on to 
starting a course in the next year at the University of uh, San Diego, um, University of California, San Diego, um, Dimensions of Consciousness, which is uh, was a really successful uh, one-term course, um, which I, I still have the syllabus today and would be as relevant today as it, as it was then, I think. Um, uh, dimensions of Consciousness and those questions have not changed all that much Mark gave us some great insights. He started his graduate student research career just when the 1971 war on drugs came into force. And he mentioned that he was working on some of the psychedelic substances all the way until 1975. So was the ban really not a ban? Or was the enforcement slow? The ban wasn't an instantaneous event. Um, it was a process. Um, so initially, it wasn't particularly difficult. Um, I got the the grant from the National Science Foundation to do the study on psychedelics with enrolling undergraduate students and lab assistants, basically. And I got to schedule one license from the Drug Enforcement Agency in order to obtain the compounds through NIDA. Um, not at that point. It wasn't very difficult. And then the next year, the California Research Advisory Panel sent uh, my mentor, Arnold, a letter saying to cease and desist his work on mescaline because he had published a paper. I wasn't an author, but he published a paper on the effects of mescaline in pigeons. And he had done this without the approval of this California legal committee, uh, approval committee, which we didn't know existed. So um, we, it was, in a sense, ironically, we just asked things and got going without much difficulty, partly because we were ignorant of the newly established regulation. So once we learned that there was a California, required California state approval process, well, then we, of course, submitted our applications to them and we got approval. But uh, we, we got the first letter warning us about it without having known they, of their existence. So um, it gradually became a little more difficult, but I think um, I kind of got in under the wire before the, the rules had been changed, but the implementation hadn't occurred. So I've had that given one DEA license ever since. Um, and I've kind of been grandfathered in to um, that program. Um, and of course, I submit my annual reports and my annual reports to the state of California as well. They've changed their name from California Research Advisory Panel, which of course we always call CRAP as an acronym. Uh, so now that the Research Advisory Panel of the state of California, RAPC. Um, but we are beholden to them and we are very dutiful. Um, it's critical to cross all the T's and dot all the I's and very, very cautious. Um, and of course, a lot of the reason my work was acceptable uh, was that if it was only in animals, I was interested in psychedelics because of what I thought we could learn about naturally occurring psychoses. And it was very impressive to me that a compound milligrams or micrograms even, of compounds could change one's mental state so dramatically 
and in ways that were reminiscent of the reports of especially schizophrenia patients but a number of different um, differently labeled psychiatric patients with psychosis and I thought we could understand something about how the brain functioned normally and abnormally um, by studying the mechanisms of actions of what we then call hallucinogens or psychopomimetics. But the National Institute on Mental Health wouldn't consider such work. Um, they had dismissed the notion that we could learn anything about psychosis from these compounds at about the time of the 1970s, mostly because of the rapid profound tolerance one sees with these compounds in both human and animal. So they dismissed the psychotomimetic model. So my research then needed to be funded through the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And of course, they are not interested um, by definition in studying psychiatric conditions uh, other than substance abuse. So I had to, of course, to couch my research applications in terms of um, the negative aspects of hallucinogen effects. But I had funding, continuous funding, from the National Institute on Drug Abuse to study hallucinogens beginning in 1981 and ending basically with my formal retirement. So I was able to continue my work um, addressing the mechanism of action of hallucinogens and the tactogens and DNA and others, uh, and cyclidine and other psychotomimetics, uh, with support from the National Institute on Drug Abuse and obtaining all compounds through NIDA and through the DEA, and really had no particular problems, largely because it wasn't working in humans, and it was the ban, if you could call it a ban, was not very heavily enforced for animal research. There were four or five labs only uh, throughout the few decades from the 70s through the 90s in the U.S. that had um, NIH support uh, for uh, research on hallucinogens. So there weren't many of us. Turned out later, when Rick Strassman decided he wanted to do some studies uh, with DMT in humans, he kept asking for what the rules were that prevented it, and it turns out that the federal government didn't have actually explicit rules that prevented that research. It was, they had these constraints and application and approval processes, but there was actually no formal prohibition in, in the law, in the federal law. So now we know two things. One, there were some research that was undertaken in the U.S., but under a very careful watch and enforcement of which is comical in itself. The DEA found out when these studies were undertaken and decided to ensure that all future studies obeyed the guidelines they set forth. Second, after working through animal studies as new neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin were discovered, when investigators wanted to study these compounds in humans, Suddenly, it was a taboo. It is like what I call in a group meeting, zombie decision-making, where no one knows who made the decision, but somehow there's a perception that something cannot be done. 
where nothing was written down in the law, especially one pertaining to prohibition of expiration of dimethyltryptamine in human clinical expiration. Mark Geyer mentioned the name Rick Strassman, who many in the area will know from his extensive work on DMT. DMT or dimethyltryptamine is seen as a spirit molecule because the experience with DMT was so quick due to its pharmacological properties. DMT opens the world to a very unique spiritual experience. While with LSD and psilocybin or even peyote, the visions were one of grand-scale kaleidoscopic patterns, DMT triggered visions of spiritual beings from ancient mythologies and in some cases even sentient beings that resemble aliens like a classic clock elf or a machine elf. DMT was so unique that the half-life was literally a matter of a few minutes, so it became referred to as a businessman lunch in urban parlance because a psychedelic trip with DMT would fit within the lunch break of a soulless cubicle slave. So how did Rick Strassman get into DMT testing in humans? Well, here's Mark Geyer again, recounting the occurrences of the time. Jed Wyatt and Chris Gillen, when Chris was at uh, the intramural program of the National Mental Health at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, had done a study um, in humans with DMT. And Chris was a, joined our department about that after I arrived. But, um, so he was a genuinely wonderful person and a very good scientist. Um, he had mentored Rick Strassman some, and oh, there's a paper on um, what he called the spirit molecule um, that was published from within the National Institute of Mental Health, so maybe there's a way to do this. But he, and it took a, a lot of dialogue for Rick to get. Finally, the government had to acquiesce because they couldn't find a rule within their um, books that actually prevented and what was perceived as a ban wasn't actually a formal ban. It, everybody just acquiesced to the presumption of a ban when there was none. They, Rick was interested not in a classic psychedelic, he was interested in a tactical called MDMA or ecstasy. And I don't remember what year it was, but um, MDMA had been become used, it was not licensed, not scheduled, um, as a forbidden substance or a scheduled one substance. And psychotherapists were using it with great um, efficacy, apparently. Uh, so a lot of psychotherapists, several psychotherapists in the U.S. and abroad, were using it in clinical interviews to increase the um, transference of the connection between the therapist and the patient and to allow, enable the patient to uh, get in touch with his or her feelings and experiences and share them. And it was thought to be a very, very effective adjunct to psychotherapy. But then the DEA, I guess it would be the DEA, um, took note of the fact that people were starting to use it recreationally. And just get the one compound that technically is supposed to be have abuse potential and be um, 
utilized in some culture um, and therefore require um, control. Um, so once it kind of hit the streets, then it became more widely known by the lay public. Um, the DA stepped in and put it in the Schedule One category, thereby precluding the psychotherapeutic use of MDMA. About the time that Rick, who was passionate about the values, clinical values, and experiential values, not necessarily for patients, but just for humans of MDMA, um, took up the, the fight, in a sense, and labored long and hard and successfully to re, you know, resume, to enable the resumption of the psychotherapeutic use of MDMA with the goal, of course, of enabling the resumption of the uh, recreational or personal choice use of MDMA even outside of the psychotherapeutic setting. So Rick Strassman moved to researching DMT because MDMA was in the Schedule 1 category. Now do you understand how the various personalities and journeys of people are intertwined? The journeys of Rick Strassman and Rick Doblin ran in parallel, while one argued from a patient advocacy and clinical psychology angle, another argued from the point of pharmacology. So in a series of three papers in the late 1990s, Rick Strassman demonstrated the safety and tolerability effects of DMT, and he documented the psychedelic effects of DMT. DMT, as Mark Geyer noted, is an endogenous serotonin-like molecule and is an active ingredient of the ayahuasca vine. We will have more about ayahuasca in a later episode, but we wanted to bring you the journey of psychedelics through the prism of the people and their experiences who brought about the change. So Mark and his colleagues decided that it was time to start something on the other prohibited molecule, psilocybin. One of Mark's close friends and peers in the area was another pharmacologist called David Nichols, who also happens to be at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Here is Mark Geyer again, recounting some pivotal personal and professional moments that are previously unchronicled in the history of the psychedelic renaissance that we see today. Dave and I were friends and colleagues um, because of shared scientific interests um, and had worked together somewhat um, before we began discussing creation of an institute. And you know, the idea of creating an institute was certainly originated with Dave. He contacted a few of us to see if we might be um, interested. Rick Crossman was one of those. Dennis McKenna was another, another. Um, and the original motivation was recognition that most of us were products of the 60s and had been determined throughout the dark years to keep the science of psychedelia alive, feeling that intellectually, potentially very important, um, we can learn a lot about the brain and consciousness study of these compounds, but that there was no, nobody following in our footsteps. Students would come and say, well, how do we get into this field? We had to say, we can't recommend it because the basic one is not much less clinical. 
was so difficult to come by that it's not a very viable career path. Um, we were aware that when we retired, there was this field would dry up, whether it's by at least in the United States. There was still modified work in Europe. Um, so they committed without much struggle, but arm twisting, but we um, all felt, well, it might be good to develop an institute that would try to rehabilitate uh, psychedelic science, bring it back into the mainstream. Um, we were aware of um, Rick's efforts, and Rick was a much more politically oriented person. We wanted to be a, a very mainstream, science-oriented organization, literally to overcome the bad reputation that the overly enthusiastic reports in the 60s from the 60s generation, Tim Leary and others, um, had given the science of psychedelic research a bad name. Um, and the lack of acceptability within the scientific community. So we wanted to create a, an organization that would do mainstream research. And Tom Mitchell once said in the presentation of the psychedelic science, we have to be holier than the Pope. We had to, and we were aware that we needed to have the highest quality science in order to rehabilitate perception in the United States. So we started Hefter Institute at, at the early stages. We were thinking that there would be a physical entity, that there would be a physical building, because the regulations were simpler because of the Native American church uh, presence there, and so the constituency of population more accepting. And because originally Rick Strassman and then Rick didn't stay with the Hefter for long. Um, and he was, that George Greer took over kind of the position uh, in Mexico that Rick had brought to the original thinking. Um, so it was, we didn't start out thinking we were going to be doing it. Um, we thought out, they started out thinking, of course, that work had great importance and implications for not just psychiatric research, but just understanding of human consciousness and experience and um, brain mechanisms controlling perception and that affect and important functions that were all abnormal in psychiatric disorders. We weren't. Our original goal was specifically to identify therapeutic treatment. Understanding more than treatments. And several of us were very skeptical that there would be ever a clinical treatment outcome. So, according to Mark Geyer, it was a brainchild of Professor David Nichols. David Nichols and the leadership group established the Institute in New Mexico as it was the state with the least degree of legal resistance owing to the Native American church. But why did the research organization need to be called the Hefter Research Institute? But for a moment, can we stop and reflect on the name Hefter Research Institute? 
Why was the research institute that these researchers saw as the last bastion passing on the knowledge in a formal way to the next generation called Hefter Research Institute? Why was it not called something else? Well, if you guessed half the answer, that peyote contains mescaline and New Mexico's Native American church connection, that's only part of the answer. The other more important part was in the real work beyond the discovery of mescaline that Arthur Hefter performed. After all, we promise that we will come back to this from episode two. Arthur Hefter's seminal contributions in pharmacology and toxicology is still in vogue today. Can we list some of his seminal contributions? If you're a scientist, this should really pique your interest. Hefter was the chemist and pharmacologist who developed chlorolose, the anesthesia used in many animal experiments until recently, but still used in many large animal studies by many physiologists to this very day. Why? Because chlorolose, as against every other anesthetic agent, does not impact the autonomic tone. He also figured out a way to measure lecithin concentration in the liver as a means to understand phosphorus poisoning. This is used clinically to this very day again. He measured the lactic acid concentration in muscles in response to paralytic toxins like strychnine and curare and gaseous molecules like carbon monoxide. So you can imagine how these tests have had an impact in forensic toxicology. He was also instrumental in isolating other alkaloids from fern root that was used as an anti-helminthic agent to combat intestinal worms. So if you've been to a pediatrician or have used a deworming therapy in children, especially in the tropical countries, due to the children losing weight rapidly, Hefter discovered one of the first medications for deworming. Furthermore, later in his career, through a collaboration with his dermatologist friend, Hefter became incredibly interested in the impact of chemicals and its metabolism in the human body and how it can be detected from skin samples. What did this lead to? Well, Hefter documented the absorption, distribution and excretion of iodine and the excretion of lithium mercury, and quinine. Hefter was the first to recognize the deposition of arsenic in hair, which led to the well-known forensic test for arsenic poisoning by hair analysis. So in David Nichols's mind, if they wanted a non-controversial time, so in David Nichols's mind, if they wanted a non-controversial name and one that would unlock the prolific potential of psychedelics, the name Hefter became the logical choice. Here is Mark Geyer again. 1993 was when we formally had our first meeting uh, in the Zen Center in Mount Baldy. And Dave, who had done the, the reading uh, history of Hefter, we wanted a name that had no not much baggage. We had one dedicated person who joined us at, partly as a funder, um, and he said, you need to take the captain, be the captain of the ship and, and decide which direction to go, not let the funders dictate it. Um, and you need to identify a more narrow mission. Um, by that time, we had pretty much given up on the idea of instantiating a physical research institute. Um, it was hard enough to get going to 
get enough funds to, to fund the number of research studies. We developed a, a portfolio, kind of a menu of research studies that people had worked on that we had reviewed, not very systematically, but um, well, but not through a very systematic, orderly review process. Um, and we offered that kind of program, a, a menu of opportunities for funding, you know, programs and studies that we thought different people might be interested in helping fund. And some of those were successful. We started getting some money. And we had some sustaining money from Bob Wallace, who was like the number six man at Microsoft. Um, he uh, was also very astute in chemistry, not just uh, computers, um, and fascinated by um, the altered states of consciousness in general and psychedelics in particular. So he was the, the sustaining funder uh, of Hector for a number of years prior to his early demise, unfortunately. Um, and, but that, that steady stream of money, especially uh, funded um, basic research. 93 was a pivotal year, not just for the, um, for my, in my life, not just for the conception of Hefter, but I was invited to a very quiet meeting in the south of Switzerland, Agno, um, celebrate the uh, 50-year anniversary of Albert Hoffman's discovery of LSD. It was actually paid for by Sandoz, but even Danny Oye at Sandoz didn't know what was happening. He had the invitation only if you'd done and published research on LSD, then you're on some list that some set of organizers had. I don't know exactly who those organizers were, but at any rate, we had a very interesting meeting of maybe 100 people. Um, Sandals didn't advertise or publicize the fact that they were funding it, supporting it. And it was a pivotal time for me, personally, because I met Franz Hollenbeiter and I think Sula's Bay Frank and Albert Hoffman and Zwei Benita and a number of other um, researchers. I established a couple of collaborations with those people. And those, because they were mostly in Europe, they continued the Swiss tradition of clinical research, human research, as well as animal research. Actually, more human than animal research on psychedelics through the, for us, the dark years. Um, so the Hefter Research Institute was started in 1993. And Mark mentioned some very seminal names in the field. Franz Wallenweider, who contributed immensely to this area via brain imaging scans and neuropharmacological studies, was funded by Hefter Research Institute. So, so we gave Professor Hell a check that helped Franz's position in the department, and that began the Hefter Zurich Research Institute. So we named it the Zurich spin-off of Hefter, which continues to this day. Um, and Franz has been a great friend and colleague over all the years. We've gotten to know him very well. So that, it was through that mechanism that we began to 
see the opportunity to do human research. Um, and in the spirit of becoming the captain of the ship and, and steering it rather than opening the doors broadly to uh, investigator-initiated studies, we decided, well, the strategy would be to get some psychedelic out of the Schedule 1 category so that we get into the hands of clinicians so that we can find out if and what it might be good for. And then psilocybin was chosen not because it's the best compound in the world, but because it was practical. We already, we and others had already kind of focused on psilocybin because that long history of use in humans with no concerns for safety. Sandoz had actually run it through toxicology and marketed it as a compound. Sensor a um, long time before we did this. Psilocybin, psilocybin is also unstable. So, so there was, you know, a track record of safety, you know, not meeting the standards of today's toxicology, but, um, and of course, there's a track record of human use through mushrooms. relatively safe. It didn't have the uh, political baggage that LSD has, the, the scary um, perception of the community. Um, and it was short-acting relatively. You know, if you're going to do experimental medicine studies, um, you have to keep a volunteer overnight is a lot of expense. And if you were going to do to a study, you know, brain imaging or whatever with LSD, you're not going to be able to let them go at the end of a four-hour day or six-hour day. Um, but psilocybin, you could. You could have them come in at nine in the morning, um, do the study, and let them go home. You, know, you have to monitor them, make sure they're all ready to go home. But by the end of the workday, the trip is gone. It's over. So psilocybin's time course was critically valuable to enable the early experimental medicine studies of mechanism phenomenology. Um, so it became our target compound, one that we thought would be the fastest and easiest to establish possible clinical efficacy and thereby break the Schedule 1 barrier because Schedule 1 requires that a compound not have medical use. So if we had a compound that had to be a psychedelic that had medical use, then we reasoned that by definition it couldn't be in the Schedule 1 category anymore. Now we'll see if that works out. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, what has happened is clinical studies have begun the initial studies that are out there are amazingly impressive in their efficacy. Um, through the years, Franzen and I in particular have been among the most skeptical 
reaching, you know, demonstrating the clinical benefit, and we're pleasantly amazed and surprised. And what's amazing and surprising is not that they can help someone in the short term, but that their clinical effects seem to be so long-lasting. And of course, it's gotten us into this neuromodulation, neuroplasticity, and to try to understand, there are a lot of us love to understand how that's happening. There are ongoing debates to whether one needs a psychedelic experience or just you just need to do a agonist activity uh, to occasion this, whatever this enduring uh, neuromodulatory neuroplasticity change that must be um, mediated by the brain um, to change emotion, affect, mood, behavior three or four months later after one or two administrations. Those effects are not pharmacological in the sense that the compound is still present in the patient, but the patient has been transformed, and most of us, I think, feel that that is a transformation occasioned by the profound experience that is produced over the mat, course of several hours, by the psychedelic pharmacological action. So if you have read any of the recent publications that detail patient interviews from the psilocybin studies, this is how it came to be. But what patients did they study first, and how did they move into clinical practice and convince the FDA that there was something useful for patients who volunteered without impacting safety? And these amazing scientists took a very pragmatic approach, but their approach was also a brilliant one. This was also around the time that the field of safety pharmacology was coming into focus and anti-cancer agents were coming into vogue. While anti-cancer agents of the time were supposed to be cellular toxins and therefore, as a result, affected the cancer cells more, but the function and the molecular actions meant that they were producing side effects. Such side effects would not be tolerable in an otherwise normal person, say one who is ingesting medication for hay fever. But a cancer patient might be willing to take on such a treatment, tilting the risk-benefit ratio to more favorable one. So the Hefter-funded studies looked at an impact of psilocybin in the end-stage cancer patients, who by nature of their prognosis had some form of mental depression. So it was reasoned that if there was an impact of improvement, this might be a logical first step in clinical exploration. Here is Mark Geyer again. So Charlie Grove was one of the original Hefter people. And Charlie Grove is at Harvard UCLA. Um, and he did the very first study, a safety study, um, and got FDA approval to do a safety study with psilocybin in end of life in-stage cancer patients. So this, and it was a safety study, but it was a safety study to consider the possible application to end-stage of life, anxiety, depression. So the only clinical readout that they used were anxiety and depression scores. That was 11 patients, and, you know, there were, there were changes in AMD and mostly uh, 
anxiety scales, but there was no control group. There was no, you know, it wasn't a group of concept study of efficacy. It was a safety study. And of course, being in that population, the FDA's concerns about risk benefit greatly mitigated. Um, so the population was in part chosen because it was a population in that the FDA would allow someone to take the risk of administering psilocybin to a human. So Charlie, being a really gifted child psychiatrist, actually, um, was able to get the study going. He and Dennis McKenna had done a lot of you know, epidemiological uh, work with ayahuasca in Brazil, and that had been his major scientific effort before doing this one uh, safety study. But he wasn't much of a statistician. He didn't know how to analyze the data. So um, a postdoc of mine, Albert, uh, Adam Halberstadt, um, was on the paper because they handed all the data to Adam because the clinicians didn't know what to do with the data analytically. Um, so that paper was published in the Archives of Neuropsychiatry. 2011. There was a little report not very long afterwards of a Hector supported study of Francisco Moreno of I think six patients with OCD that was fairly early, um, but it, it followed um, the initial cancer study, safety study. And, you know, there were claims of clinical benefit in, in the OCD study, but statistically there was absolutely no nothing that one could publish that uh, to support such a claim six subjects. I think it was six subjects. So but there was enough you know, Moreno had actually done raised the possibility by simply doing the, the study. Uh, and somehow the possibility was bigger than the outcome. So that opened the door to studies in ill populations. Rick, had, Rick Strassman had been the pioneer to do the first human study in a healthy volunteer in the, in the U.S. with DMT. Uh, DMT didn't have the kind of safety track record, but it only lasts you know, last less than an hour, so the risk there was limitation. Um, he was cut off. He cut off those studies when he tried to do an interaction with a beta blocker. She got permission to do. I had to do the animal study that FDA required since you couldn't find any evidence of any mammal ever having been uh, receiving both the beta blocker and DMT. And FDA wanted to know that that wouldn't kill people or the animals. So I never published it. But so to help Rick, I did a study on just showing that there was no mortality um, between DMT and Bindalol. Um, but he started, when he started doing those studies, he had a, a patient, or a subject, not a patient, with a hypertensive crisis, and then he cut off those studies. If there was some interaction, you know, he was concerned it might be dangerous. So that work never continued to try to understand the. But other than Rick's study, I, I don't 
recall anything between that and Charlie's first foray into psilocybin and uh, help an ill population, and potentially patient population. So anxiety and depression, I think, are the very first indications that show even a hint of efficacy. So this is how the journey of psilocybin in regimented and legally transparent psychotherapy clinical sessions came to be. But we're not done yet. We have left a loose strand hanging from the beginning of the episode. Do you remember? It is a story of a lady, Amanda Fielding, who did not have a few letters behind her name, but she still managed to spark the psychedelic research. Just like Rick Doblin and the Hefter Research Institute founders, Amanda Fielding realized that the only way to accomplish any demonstration of efficacy with psychedelics was to explore this as a proper scientific endeavor. With an eye to lobbying on drug policy reform, she set out a process of setting up the Beckley Foundation in the UK in 1998. A couple of years later, she held a seminar series to educate the drug policy experts and to influence political leadership at the time in the House of Lords. It was one such meeting that also had the presence of a US scientist who was the former director at one of NIH's institutes called as NIDA or National Institute for Drug Abuse. The former NIDA director is said to have mentioned at this meeting that psychedelics would face an uphill battle due to political pressure in getting approval for any studies while still accepting that his own psychedelic experience with LSD was the most profound experience of his life and one that he is grateful for. Seeing the diabolical nature of global drug policy, she was one of the early vocal proponents of drug policy reform, arguing for more regulated and non-prohibitive use of substances classified under the Misuse of Drug Substances Act, a UK analogue of the DEA's policy. Despite all this, Amanda's interest into exploring psychedelics did not materialize until a young man by the name of Robin Carhart Harris made an acquaintance with her and expressed his interest in psychedelic research, consciousness and Freud. If people did not trust in destiny or being at the right place at the right time, the following story should make them think again. One of her academic friends, Professor David Nutt at the time, was advising the British government on the misuse of drugs. He had performed a formal study outlining the risk of psychoactive substances and their harms against existing regulated substances like alcohol, nicotine and comparing them to other drugs. The results revealed something remarkable. Psychedelic mushrooms from which psilocybin was derived was ranked really low, probably ranked last in terms of harm compared to alcohol or other addictive substances. Professor David Nutt, in an effort to be provocative, suggested that the harms might be lower than that of horse riding. This led to a furore in the establishment and dismissal of David Nutt from the advisory committee. While all of this was happening and the data for this study was being collected, Amanda Fielding's acquaintance, Robin Carhart Harris, enrolled himself in the PhD program at University of Bristol. And the two unlikely pioneers in David Nutt and Amanda Fielding joined forces to raise money to perform the first MRI brain imaging study 
using LSD and psilocybin. In the last episode, we discussed some of the changes in cortical blood flow, increased connections, and overall decrease in brain entropic state. But since then, Amanda Fielding and other philanthropists have funded multiple studies that explored the effects of these compounds using brain imaging techniques and exploration of the use of these substances to treat alcohol addiction and depression. Amanda Fielding currently is a founder of a small pharmaceutical company called Beckley SciTech that explores the therapeutic potential of other psychedelic substances. These stories really do paint a great picture in how when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And more importantly, the tough got going with a dose of rationality that did not exist in the area until the 1970s. So now we've told you how these notable people sparked the Renaissance through their efforts. But is there more to say from the patients themselves? Should we dig in? Well, you gotta wait for the next episode for that bit to unravel. You've been listening to Psychedelics. Psychedelics is a Scraps original podcast produced and narrated by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. Scraps is a volunteer-run organization created by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt to disseminate factful stories of science, scientists, and innovators as a service to the world. Select research for this podcast was performed by Sharina Rice. The producers thank Clara Bertinshaw for her invaluable input. Multimedia services was provided by Dr. Romeo Ratch. The scripts were written and edited by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. Financial support to cover the production costs was from Cyber Inc. and a kind donor BB. Recordings were done at Caprino Studios in the UK and Slightly Red Studio in San Francisco. Swaminathan Tirunyana Samandam performed the mixing and mastering. All recordings including interviews are properties of the producers and should not be reproduced without permission. The show notes, transcripts, and useful links pertaining to the episode are located at the podcast website, psychedelics.com. <laughs>